Uh, well, we have the honor and the privilege of hearing um, from Pastor Jacob this morning as he opens the word, um, and he asks that I read the passage for today. And I don't think I know what that is. Hold on, let me look it up. First John, what? 228 through 310. Thank you, Pastor. All right, stand with me if you are willing and able. First John 228 through 310. And that reads, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall, we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And who are, oh, sorry. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's welcome Pastor Jacob as he comes to open the word for us. Good morning. It is good to be with you all today. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. And I am just so thankful for this weekend. Just beautiful ceremony last night. Russ and Heather are here, happy and smiling and thankful for that. Um, somebody called it the Royal Wedding of City Fellowship, so I think that's about right. <clears throat> And I'm so thankful for the way that God has already been at work here today. It's a blessing to me. I'm thankful. Um, but just in case you didn't uh, get the ping on your phone this morning to remind you, uh, today is St. Patrick's Day. Um, I don't know if you knew this. Uh, and we don't officially uh, celebrate St. Patrick's Day here at City Fellowship, officially, uh, whatever that would mean. Um, but I do want to recognize it. 
We promise we won't pinch you if you forgot to wear your green today or whatever. Um, but you, you may not be aware that St. Patrick's Day is actually a Christian holiday. Um, I know it may be obvious. After all, it is St. Patrick's Day. Um, that should be enough to give it away, but I don't pass judgment on you if it never occurred to you that St. Patrick is actually a Christian saint. Uh, he is indeed one of our forefathers in the faith, and one that I think that we should look at. We should look at him seriously, and we should learn uh, from his life. Now, I, I'm well aware that when somebody says St. Patrick's Day, you're probably likely to think about leprechauns and sparkly green top hats, and all of that is fine as far as it goes. But I want to encourage you today to remember who St. Patrick really was and why should we should learn um, from his life and take it as an inspiration for our own Christian walk. Um, and around this time of year, I, I know there's always articles and blog posts and TV spots about who the real St. Patrick was. Um, and so I won't bore you by regurgitating a bunch of stuff you could probably watch in a 10-minute YouTube video. Um, so if you're interested in that stuff, in the life and times of St. Patrick, uh, I encourage you to do a Google search and you'll, you'll get what you need there. Um, however, in commemoration of the day today, I, I just want to draw our attention to a few things about uh, St. Patrick that I think are formative and actually really important for us to embody in the church today. And some things that I actually think are particularly uh, important for us in ministry here at City Fellowship. And so, just to give you a little bit of background, the short story of St. Patrick's life goes something like this. Uh, St. Patrick was from Great Britain. Well, not great at the time. He was from Britain. Um, and at the age of around 16, you may not know this, he was actually taken captive uh, by Irish pirates. And he was hauled off. He was taken away from his family and his home uh, to Ireland, where he was placed into slavery. Uh, and he remained enslaved in Ireland for, for like six years before he was able to escape and return home to his family in Britain. His father was a deacon in the Catholic Church. And through his example, Patrick eventually joined the Holy Orders himself, and became a cleric. And through a series of events, Patrick ended up actually returning to Ireland, to the place of his enslavement, as a missionary to the Irish, the very people who took him captive and kept him enslaved for so many years through his adolescence. And through Patrick's work in Ireland, through his service to the very people that should have been his enemy. He brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to the entire country of Ireland. So just to give you a little peek into how and why he did this, listen to, to this from the beginning of St. Patrick's autobiography, his confessions. He says, It was there in slavery in Ireland that the Lord opened up my awareness to my lack of faith. Even though it came about late, I recognized my failings. So I turned with all my heart to the Lord my God 
And he looked down on my lowliness and had mercy on my youthful ignorance. He guarded me before I knew him. And before I came to wisdom and could distinguish between good and evil, he protected me and consoled me as a father does for a son. This is why I can't be silent about such great blessings and such a gift that the Lord so kindly bestowed in the very land of my captivity. This is how we can repay such blessings when our lives are changed and we come to know God. This is how. To praise and to bear witness to his great wonders before every nation under heaven. And for Patrick, that meant Ireland. You see, God's grace in the midst of turmoil filled Patrick with gratitude. And the need and the desire to preach the gospel that had saved his soul, and which had preserved him through slavery. The desire to preach even to the very people that had caused him so much pain. And St. Patrick took this advice from the Apostle Paul. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. And to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. You see, St. Patrick became Irish in order to win the Irish. Even though he had great reason to hate his enemy, the kindness of God drove him to love and to kinship with them. If we are to bear witness to Christ in this world, even here in Jackson, Tennessee, especially here in Jackson, Tennessee, we must seek kinship with those on the other side of the dividing line. So I encourage you to remember St. Patrick rightly today and take inspiration from his example because he truly was an example of the righteousness of God on display in this world the kind of righteousness that seeks to go across that dividing line and find communion even in the most unlikely of places. And that's what our text is about today. It's about the righteousness of God. And in the passage which was read for us just a few moments ago, you heard it. John wants to tell us about the righteousness of God. And to do so, I think he does two things. He lays a foundation, and then he builds a structure. He lays a foundation, and then he builds a structure on top of that foundation. He gives us some preliminary information, and then he shows us, in simple terms, what righteousness is. 
he frames that truth with some theological presuppositions, and then he explains the righteousness of God. John does this to correct some false doctrine, some, some bad teaching. Um, and that's actually what the entire uh, first letter of John is about. It's correcting false doctrine, improper teaching. And to encourage us in the true way of Jesus. And in order to grasp that true way, you have to have a solid foundation. Amen? So let's hear again from 1 John 2, starting in 28 and, and following. And let's hear this foundation that John gives us. It says, And now, little children, abide in Him, abide in Jesus, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who does right is born of Him. The first thing John tells us is that the foundation of God's righteousness is totally in Jesus Christ. Verse 29 says that if you know that He is righteous, righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. And if we know that, we know that anyone who is righteous is born of Jesus Christ. That is a very interesting thing to say. To be born of Jesus Christ. And it may be easy for us, especially in the context of a church service, for this language just to pass right by you and seem normal. So I want to invite you to realize how very strange that is, how very weird it is. John tells us that if we are righteous, we are born of God. What in the world does that mean? I think this is one of the biggest mysteries of the Christian faith. And it's something that we need to explore throughout our life in Christ. And if the Lord is kind, one day we may understand in full. But for now, full disclosure, I don't pretend to fully understand this. I have a long way to go in my life before I get myself wrapped around the meaning of this. But since I'm here... I figure I ought to give you some thoughts. So here goes. I think we all know that uh, our physical birth is a moment of demarcation. We were not in the world, and then we were in the world. We were not alive, and then we were alive. We were not breathing, and then we were breathing. And after our birth, we live our life, and then we die. This is the natural way of things. But the strange spiritual reality is that all of our life, all the time that we spend breathing in this world, is a kind of birthing process for what we will become eternally. And I think we have that image of the physical birth to make this visceral for us, to make it relatable and the spiritual birth that we experience is something like that. 
And in keeping with our Irish theme of the day, uh, the Irish Christian poet and philosopher John O'Donohue says that the greatest privilege of the human life is to become midwife to the birth of the soul. I think that's right. There's some mysterious way in which uh, we usher in our own spiritual birth in Christ. And part of the Christian calling is to be a good midwife to that birthing process. To be the kind of midwife that helps facilitate that birth and not the kind that stifles it. Now, I know this might sound weird and mystical and kind of out there, but y'all, this is Bible stuff. Amen? This is God's stuff. This is some of the mystery of the faith that we proclaim. So, if I have weirded you out so far, just hang on, because we're going to go even deeper. This language that John uses here should remind you of something if you know your Bible. It should remind you of an interaction recorded by John himself in his gospel. The meeting of Jesus and Nicodemus. So if you will, turn with me to uh, the gospel of John, chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So if I'm weirding you out with the whole birth analogy, if you think that I'm going off the deep end, theologically, just cool your jets. (laughs) I'm using this analogy because Jesus uses this analogy. Jesus says that in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again, or born anew, or born from above. Nicodemus says, what in the world does that mean? You can't be born again. It is not possible. Jesus says, unless you are born of water and spirit, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is trying to tell us, he's trying to tell Nicodemus, that we must undergo recreation in order to enter his kingdom. We must be made into a new creature, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. This reference to water and the Spirit, I think, is important. And it's certainly a reference to another 
part of the scripture, which I think will illuminate this for us. It's a reference to the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36. <clears throat> so just hear this, just listen to this passage in Ezekiel 36, and I think you'll start to see. Just to give you a little bit of background on this, basically, um, at this point in the story, the people of Israel have failed again. They've defiled God's name among the nations. They have worshipped idols. They have made a mockery of God and their covenant with Him. And God is not too happy about this at all. And from the looks of it, God is about to set things right. And it seems He's about to smash Israel for good. Um, but see, while I'm reading, if you can, if you can see... Uh, where the little twist is. So starting in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I will vindicate my holiness before your eyes. Did you catch it? He's about to smash them. <laughs> but then he twists it. It's through you that I will vindicate my holiness. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle, here's the water reference, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all the idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Do you see the rebirth in Ezekiel's vision? This is the new birth that Jesus is describing to Nicodemus. This is what it means to be born of God, as John puts it in our text for today. That is the foundation of righteousness. Did you see it in Ezekiel? It is the new spirit within you that will cause you, enable you to walk in God's way. That is how you have righteousness. So it's not your ability to keep the laws of God that will justify you before the Lord. It is the degree to which you're willing to invite the Spirit of God to dwell within you. Amen. Now, let's keep reading. Chapter 3, verse 1. And we'll see the rest of this foundation to take shape. See what, the love, what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. 
Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We are children of God. In Christ, you are born again into a new creation. And that new creation, in that new creation, you are adopted into God's family as a child, as a beloved son or daughter. And John says that the world doesn't see it. It's blinded to the reality of who and what the church is, who and what you are. But you should not despair when the world doubts, but rather press into that new identity that you have as a child of God. Paul has a lot to say about the adoption, uh, our adoption into God's family. He says that in one place that it's not by flesh that we are children of Israel, but rather that we are children by promise. Those who profess Christ are the true children of Abraham, the children who were promised by God way back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 21. We are children then, not by bloodline, but by faith. And so it is with our righteousness. It only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what John means when he says in verse 3 that everyone who hopes in Jesus purifies himself, even as Jesus is pure. You see, because our righteousness before God is bound up in Christ. It is dependent on God putting a new spirit within us by Christ. Our only way of attaining purity is through hope in Jesus. There's no other way that we may be saved. There's no other way that we may be righteous. And so one last word on this foundation. In verse 2, John says that we are God's children now though it does not yet appear what we shall be. But when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Another very interesting thing to say. And this is another passage that if we're not careful to pause and ponder this for just a minute, we might just let it go right past us. What could John mean by does not yet appear what we shall be. Well, to answer that, I think you have to read the second part of the verse, where it says, when Jesus appears, we shall see him as he is. What could John be thinking about here? What does he mean, we shall see him as he is? I believe that John is remembering. He's remembering two powerful moments from his life as he wrote this passage. First, I believe he's remembering the day when he and Peter and James and Jesus went up on the mountain, when they saw Jesus glorified before their eyes. Do you remember this? Matthew chapter 17 tells the story, and it says Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garment became white as light. They got 
a peek at Jesus' glorified body. They got to see how magnificent he really is, what he's really like in the heavenly realm. They saw him as he is. John is remembering this moment, and it obviously made an impression. And second, I believe John is probably remembering Jesus when he appeared to the disciples after his resurrection. And particularly when he appeared to them in the locked room. The Gospel of John tells this story in chapter 20. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. But his body was, shall we say, something new. He was the same Jesus, but he was different. He was the same body, but it was changed somehow. He appeared in their midst without walking through the door, but he certainly was not a ghost. In fact, he probably anticipated that, and he invited Thomas, you remember, to put his hand into the scarred wound on his side. His body was there. It was physical. And it even bore the scars of his life. And his body was more than just resuscitated. It was resurrected. It was the same, but it was different. John is not sure how to put it here. He said, it does not yet appear what our bodies shall be in the resurrection as God's children. But what we do know is that we'll be like Jesus because we've seen him as he is. Amen. Here's the bottom line. Your resurrection in Christ is a body resurrection. It is, it is not a resurrection to some immaterial world in the clouds. It is a resurrection into the world. A world that will be resurrected as well. So don't ever, don't ever forget the importance of your body, both in this life and in the next. It matters. It matters how you treat your body. It also matters what you do with your body. Your body is integral to who you are. It is integral to the practice of righteousness. Right and wrong are expressed and manifested in our bodies. Amen? Which leads to the second part of our passage. Now that John has a foundation, we see that he builds a structure upon it. Remember, the foundation is that our righteousness, any good that we can do, is because God has put His Spirit into us through Jesus. He has made us a new creation by our new birth in the Spirit of Christ. And with that foundation in mind, John is free to build a structure upon it, a structure that outlines what righteousness really looks like and how to tell the difference between right and wrong. Let's read on uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 4. It says, Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, 
and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who does right is righteous, as he is righteous. He who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God commits sin, for God's nature abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this it may be seen who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not do right is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. I should say, first and foremost, that when John talks about sinning here, it is most likely that, that he means sin in the sense of continual, habitual practice of sin. My translation here is fairly literal, and it makes it sound as though true Christians should be totally free from sin all the time, full stop. Otherwise, they're not truly Christians. And I can assure you, based on the full counsel of Scripture, that this cannot be what he's saying. In fact, John makes it clear even throughout this letter that, the true, that true Christians with authentic faith will stumble into sin. It's unavoidable. And what John is diagnosing here is habitual practice of sin without repentance. And other translations make this clear. And the translation that was read earlier did. They say things like, No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning continually. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. John's point here is practical. The one who abides in Christ makes a practice of righteousness, not a practice of sin. And while you may stumble into sin in your day-to-day -day life, if you are in Christ, those moments are always the exception and not the rule. And John would encourage us, as we're encouraged throughout Scripture, to guard your heart, to turn away from temptation, and to repent of your sin as often as you commit it. The Lord is faithful, brothers and sisters. He's faithful where you fall. And He is always, always ready to forgive your trespasses, no matter what. He only desires that you turn to Him in those moments of weakness. He's good for the rest. Amen. John also wants to clarify for us what righteousness really looks like. And I don't know about you, but this world can be confusing. I really mean it. Um, there are some times when I really don't know what is the righteous thing to do. If you're anything like me, you see all the shades of gray in the hard situations of your life. Do you know what I'm talking about? All the hard situations at home and at work and in your family and in your friends. It's often hard to say definitively, this is right and this is wrong. It's nice when things are clear. But in my experience, life is rarely that way. Especially, especially when you're dealing 
with real flesh and blood human beings. Luckily, John has a litmus test for righteousness. He has a simple, not an easy, but a simple way to determine what is righteous and what is not. You can see it in verse 7. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does right is righteous as Jesus is righteous. Let me put it another way. Righteousness is true righteousness if it looks like Jesus. Jesus himself, his life is the litmus test for what is righteous. For the one who does right will do right as Jesus did right. (laughs) Say it again? All right. The one who is righteous will do right as Jesus did right. Christ is the ultimate arbiter of truth and integrity. If there's anything good and right in the world, if there's ever an act of righteousness done in the world, it is a ripple effect that has resonated out from the eternal goodness of Jesus Christ. So, with that in mind, as you are judging in your life the right way to go from day to day, as you are trying to discern what is righteous and what is not, remember to always submit your actions, submit your considerations to Christ and compare them with his life. Simple. Simple, but not easy. Which leads me to John's last point. You can tell who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil by how their life compares to the life of Christ. Now you may say, that is a high standard. And you would be right. That is a high standard. Because it's supposed to be. It is a high calling. The life of discipleship is costly. And it demands your absolute best. Now, if you're beginning to despair because you struggle... You're beginning to despair because you can't hardly make it through a week, a day, an hour without falling into sin. If you're beginning to despair because of how much your life does not look like Jesus' life, I would encourage you, you have forgotten the foundation of our righteousness. You forgot that Christ is the righteous one. And you need only rest on that foundation to be righteous before God. And listen, the sanctification of your day-to-day life will come with time if you make a practice of abiding in Jesus. And Jesus himself has some good and practical advice for judging the righteousness of your own life. Examine the fruit. Remember, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7 that you can tell what kind of tree you're dealing with by the fruit that it produces. Now, it may be small at first, 
you may only be producing raisins for a while. <laughs> but over time, those raisins... <laughs> And raisins are fine, but eventually they turn into prunes, and then grapes, and, and so on and so forth. You will begin to produce fruit that is more and more abundant, more and more juicy, more and more glorifying to God. Amen? Amen? All right. And I want to invite you now to start, to start practicing uh, abiding in Christ. And part of the way that we practice that every week here at City Fellowship is by taking communion together. Amen? Amen. So I'll invite my servers and musicians and ushers to go ahead and take your places. Um, and I want to remind everyone that the bread and the juice that we partake of every week, it is a tangible, it's a tangible way that we proclaim that we abide in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And we depend on him for our righteousness. So whether or not you have taken communion a thousand times, whether you've uh, taken it a million times, whether today is going to be your first time taking communion, I want to invite you, if you believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, you are invited to come and take of the elements. And I invite you to do so and to proclaim the reality that he dwells within you and you abide in him. Amen. So come forward as you're released by the ushers and receive the bread and be reminded that this is the body of Christ broken for you and you'll dip it into the juice and be reminded that this is the blood of Christ that was shed for you. And if you need prayer, if you need to lay anything down before the Lord today, I want to invite you to come. Courtney and I are going to be uh, up front praying, uh, and we invite you to come and pray with us. So let me pray for us, and I want to invite the Holy Spirit to come and turn our hearts toward Him as we prepare to take communion together. Pray with me. Father God, we humble ourselves before you. It is only by your strength that we can be righteous. It is only by your grace that we can do right in our relationships. It is only by your spirit that we may represent you faithfully in this world. And I pray that you would make your presence known intimately to each believer here this morning. And that it was, as we take communion together, we would receive it as, a, as your tangible presence among us. May it remind us who we are, Lord. May it remind us who you are. So that we may carry the truth and the power of the Spirit of Christ with us into the world as we live our life through his Spirit. Be with us now in his name. Amen.